leading us home is part and parcel of where we are in our current study, that we're looking at a survey of the kingdom. Uh, we're looking at that first uh, or as it's a theme, especially throughout the four Gospels. Uh, we started this last week, and uh, for those of you who weren't with us, just so that you get a sense of our trajectory again, um, there were four things that were requested after we finished up uh, our series in James. Uh, the four were that we might go back and address something on faith, something on prayer, something on forgiveness and bitterness, and um, in the process, where we wanted to land with that is in the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. But prefatory to that, we wanted to take a look at this, this theme of kingdom in the Gospels that bring us back to the Sermon on the Mount itself, and then we'll narrow down and start to address those things. Let me take you back to uh, what we just had read for us, Acts chapter 1. I take you here because this shows you the end game of how important this theme was to Jesus and to his preaching and teaching. Uh, this is after Christ's resurrection. So in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had been given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs and appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, this is after his resurrection. This is still an imperative in the mind of Jesus. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It was a theme stuck in their mind. Now, they weren't clear on what he was doing with all this, but we're going to try and unpack that as we work through this. And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father's fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when they had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood beside them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And again, there is this forward looking to the finality of all things in the return of Christ. So we're looking at this theme of the gospel of the kingdom, and I have two main reasons especially for all those that are gathered here. The first is this, so that Christian, you do not fall into what is an all-too-often pattern of just thinking about your salvation as Jesus and me. When you were saved, you were saved for as a part of God's eternal plan and purpose. You were brought into his kingdom. And there are tremendous ramifications for that. We no longer live for ourselves. 
But we've been brought into Christ and therefore have something to do with the advancement of his kingdom and what that looks like. And then for those of you among us who might not be believers yet, you don't know Christ as your Savior, we want you to know what you're getting yourself into. This is not just about some personal thing. Yes, it is personal, but it it brings you into a grand scale of things. So when you come to the saving knowledge of Christ, when you commit your life to Him, you're not just committing your life to Him personally. You're joining, you're entering into a kingdom under His Lordship, under His economy. And we're telling you that you're going to have to leave behind your self-lordship That you no longer get the right of mastery over your own life because you never had it anyway. That was a usurpation of his authority. But you have to to forego mastery over your own life and submit to his lordship in his kingdom and the way that he wants life lived in the outworking of his kingdom in all the earth. So this gospel of the kingdom becomes exceedingly important. And I don't want you as an unbeliever coming into this and signing on thinking, oh, well, you know, we, we just joined, we just joined the kingdom. I, I want this Jesus thing so my sins are forgiven, but then I don't need anything more to do with Jesus. It doesn't function that way. And as we look at how this, this trails all the way through the gospels, we see that certainly wasn't the way that it was preached and taught by the apostles from the very earliest ages. But sometimes it's thought of in our intensely personal age as though that's the way it is. So we've seen that this theme of the kingdom just shoots all the way through the four Gospels, and that's what we're tracking out in this initial section. Last week, those of you that were here, we went through 31 of these, 32. We're going to try and finish them up. So you've got that 73-point outline in your in your bulletin notes. If we don't get through those this week, we'll finish them up next week, but we're going to try and shoot through. And for those of you who came in late, just so I make the announcement again, we're canceling this evening's service due to the weather, so we want you to stay off the roads and stay home, and we'll have communion next Sunday night instead of this week. So uh, we want you to drive safe when you leave here as well. Let's go back again to Colossians chapter 1. He, speaking of Christ, has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That's what salvation is, is being delivered from the mastery the domain, the tyranny of darkness. That's the tyranny of self. The tyranny of the system of this world. And we've been delivered out from that tyranny and instead transferred to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Now notice, you're going to, if I can paraphrase the words, if I can quote the words of of, um, uh, Bob Dylan, you got to serve somebody. It may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. Nobody is a free agent in this world. Because when God created us, He created us in His image for His purpose, and He has the sovereign right of creatorship over His creature. To say, this is what I designed it for, and anything other than that is rebellion against my creatorship. And when you get saved, you're transferred from the kingdom of darkness, this rebellion against his right of creatorship and lordship, into his kingdom. Not into just running free, but into his kingdom. The kingdom of his beloved son, who is the king of the kingdom, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness 
of sins. It is into his kingdom that we're transferred. So what is the kingdom? And uh, a number of you asked, because you couldn't write down the definition I gave you last week quickly enough, it's in the back of your notes this week. It's the very last thing. If you look to the last page, uh, I, I put it in there for this week. And we've defined the kingdom out of Ephesians 1, 10, 2, 7, and 3, 9 through 11 as this, that the kingdom is a universe under the manifest rulership of the manifest God in Jesus Christ and his redeemed people, enjoying and displaying the unfathomable depths of his mercy and grace forever. That's the kingdom, if you're a Christian here today, that you've been brought into. This is what God is doing in his eternal plan and purpose, subduing the whole of the universe under the rulership of Christ, where his mercy and grace are enjoyed and displayed forever by his people. That's, that's your goal. That's what God has for you when it's all said and done. So we started off, and I'm going to review these in real rapid fire because you've already got them in your notes. Out of Matthew 3.1, we saw that the kingdom was the core of the message of John's ministry as he was introducing Christ. And we saw that following John, Jesus began his ministry preaching about the kingdom. Uh, and you've got the, you've got the uh, references here. Wherever he went, Jesus preached about the kingdom, and he demonstrated what it would be like. The kingdom is the great promise of the Sermon on the Mount. The kingdom has nothing in it that's contrary to God's holiness. Admission into the kingdom requires a holiness that is greater than the strictest religionist can possibly muster. This is why we need the imputed righteousness of Christ, so that we can be holy with God's holiness in order to be a part of it. It's arrival, it's consummation, is to be the subject of our prayers. And we're going to revisit that when we go through the Sermon on the Mount and especially the Lord's Prayer. Entering into it and advancing in it is to be the Christian's main focus. Advancing the kingdom of God, His reign in me, His reign in others by bringing them into the kingdom through the preaching of the gospel, and then advancing the kingdom in my brother and sister in Christ by building them up in Christ and in the gospel. No one will enter into it who is not in perfect submission to the will of God. Either we submit to him or we are outside the kingdom. Is Christ your king? That's the question. And in order to be in the kingdom, I have to own Christ as my king as my sovereign, as my Lord, which means I submit my life to do what He calls me to do in His Scripture, and I cease being self-directed and instead am directed by Him. Tenth, it was to be the subject of apostolic preaching. That's how Jesus sent them out, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The greatest of men in this life are not worthy to be compared with those who will enter into it, what they will be like when we finally enter in. There, Jesus uses the comparison of John the Baptist and saying he's the greatest among men, and yet the one who's least in the kingdom is greater than he is. People are constantly trying to enter it through some other way than through faith in Jesus Christ, trying to enter it through a gospel of of works or prosperity or rites and ceremonies or joining the right group or being a part of some faction, and of course you cannot enter the kingdom that way. Its great power and contrariness to the present age are demonstrated in the binding of evil, not the permitting of evil. You were not saved so that you could continue in your sin. You were saved that you might be delivered from the tyranny of your sin. 
And, and if you're not a Christian here today, we're not calling you to come to Christ so that you can continue in your sin with immunity. We're calling you to Christ so that you can be freed from the dominion of those sinful things living under his perfect holy reign. Knowledge of it, of the kingdom, is, is exclusive and it's granted only by God's own discretion. Not everybody gets to see this. Fallen men receive the message of it in one of four different ways. And you might be able to see yourself on this scale this morning. Men hear the gospel of the kingdom and some treat it with indifference or hardness. And others have a superficial response to it. Oh, I like some of these ideas, but I don't want to have to sign on for the whole deal. And others have a, a temporary grasp of it. They, they seem to get it and they seem to be a part, but... But as soon as trial and tribulation and difficulty comes, well, this is too hard. I'm not sure I want to stay there. And then there are those who display genuine fruitfulness over time. In this present age, the kingdom is sometimes impossible. The children of the kingdom are sometimes impossible to separate from the children of the devil. It isn't always our outward action that makes that difference, and, and we can't always sort that out. I'm, I was amazed this week. I'm, I'm reading a uh, I'm in a study group, and we're reading a book uh, by uh, an author by the name of Leonard Verdine. And in that book uh, called Anatomy of a Hybrid, he's talking about church-state relations and how they have functioned throughout the centuries. And there was one group who were very much opposed to the Reformers because the Reformers saw a church-state relationship that's much tighter than we would imagine in our society today. And they didn't like that. But what, and, and so they were, they were saying, you know, it's terrible because then the church will persecute by the use of the government all those of us who don't hold exactly to their point of view. And, and they were right. There was some real evils perpetrated under that kind of a system. Any system can be perverted and misused. The problem was that, that while they were responding to these others who they didn't like their church-state relationship perspective, the first thing they did as soon as they disagreed with them about their church-state relationship was say, well, they can't be regenerate if they don't have my view of this church-state relationship. We like to do that with one another. No. Sometimes it's impossible to separate the children of the kingdom from the children of the devil from outward appearance. Sometimes it's very difficult. The kingdom begins small, and yet it gradually increases to massive proportion. It begins small in the believer and gradually begins to consume more and more of us. This is going to be teased out a lot when we get to the Lord's Prayer. When we're praying, Thy kingdom come, we're praying, God, take control. I want you to govern my thoughts, my emotions, my perspectives, the way I perceive things. I want you to govern the way I respond to other people, the love of my heart, the things I hate and the things I love. I want those to come under your lordship so that I'm living in the fullness of your kingdom. It permeates and affects the environment in which it exists, especially personally. And there are but two kinds of people in the world, sons of the kingdom and sons of the evil one. There is no neutrality here. We're either uh, under Christ's rule or we are in rebellion to Christ's rule. The consummation of the kingdom will bring judgment and separation. When it finally comes, there will be a final division and Christ himself will separate those who are his and those who are not. The entrance of the believer into it will be glorious beyond description. We have some wonderful portions on that in Matthew 13:43. if you want to see that. 
The kingdom is hidden treasure that only those who have dug into it really begin to value and pursue properly. When people don't want the kingdom of Christ, they have no concept of its value. They haven't dug into it very deeply at all. It is of such exceeding value that it is worth losing everything else for. There is no sin that should be so dear to us that it's worth forsaking the kingdom of heaven. What is it that we cling to so tightly that can be dear to us and precious to us beyond the lordship of Christ? Even though we fish in a world with a large net, there will be a divine sorting of all those who are drawn by the gospel. Will there be false professors, people who hear the gospel and claim to be Christ's and be drawn in by the gospel message and then in the final analysis be weeded out? Yes, that's the truth. This is why we examine ourselves to see whether or not we're in the faith and whether or not we own that authentically. To understand it is to understand the mystery of the ages. It's to see how God's eternal plan is being worked out in the heavens and the earth. And it is the final restoration of God and his people, of heaven and earth perfectly united and brought together. You see that picture in Revelation where the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and heaven and earth rest together and are in perfect harmony once again. The apostles' glimpse of it was so overwhelming they didn't know how to respond on the Mount of Transfiguration. It absolutely stunned them into stupidity. And uh, as a matter of fact, one translation says that, that Peter was, was actually stupid by what he had said because uh, he, he, was, he was irrational when he saw the glory of Christ in his transfiguration. It is not to be had by craft or pursuit of power, but is given by the promise of a father to his children. We receive it by believing the promise. It brings a forgiveness that produces forgiveness. If we're not forgiving people, we have not understood the gloriousness of what we've been forgiven. I have said it before and I'll say it again. No one on this earth has ever sinned against me as greatly as I have sinned against my Christ. How then can we restrict forgiveness from others? There are different callings and giftings within its borders. This passage speaks of some who will forego even the pleasures and the legitimacy of marriage that they might give themselves to the kingdom. And then we saw that some will go to extraordinary measures to give themselves to it even in this life, that very same idea. Matter of fact, this is where we finished last week, and I mentioned an individual who I knew and we... uh, Bob expunged from the recording of that the country which this individual is serving so that um, his life is not in danger. But we have an individual in our own midst who later this month, Anna Smith, is going to be doing exactly the same thing, going to one of those places where it is dark and dangerous. For what purpose? Spread the kingdom. Spread the kingdom. This brings us to our next one. Matthew 19. Uh, This was when Jesus was talking to the disciples. He had a group. He was in a house. They talked about uh, entering the kingdom. And he said, now let the little children come to me. This is when they were upset that he was blessing these children. And said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. His point being this. Those to whom it belongs come easily and openly to Christ. There he was, standing as an adult figure, 
amongst children. And they were bringing these children to him and blessing them. And he received them easily. And children were attracted to him. And the ones to whom the kingdom belongs come easily and openly to Christ as their Lord, as the, as the one who alone can bless them and bring them to fullness. In Matthew 19, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I've heard a number of people try to tone this particular passage down. And they've said, well, you know what it was? There was this gate going into Jerusalem, and it was sometimes called the needle, and camels would have to get down on their knees if they were loaded with stuff in order to get through it, and he's using that as a euphemism. No, he's not. He's saying it's more difficult for a camel to go through the eye of a sewing needle than, it, than, than for, it, it's more difficult for a rich man to enter heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a sewing needle. That's, that's the plain statement there. What's that mean? Some of us here, no doubt, have some wealth. Does that mean we have to divest ourselves of of all physical goods? No. It means we cannot perceive our richness in our goods. If your wealth is in the things of this world, if your wealth is located in family, in house, in career, In financial security, if that is how you deem yourself rich, then you will not be willing to give those things up for the cause of having Christ. Maybe your wealth is in a sin you own. And you only feel rich when you have that thing. And you're saying, no, I won't give that up. That's where my wealth is. Because where your wallet is, that's where your heart is. Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Same thing. If there's anything that you value so much that you will willingly step out from the kingdom in order to have it, you're a rich person. And in that mindset, it would be easier to get a giant camel to go through the eye of a little tiny sewing needle than to enter heaven. It stands in direct antithesis to this present world system. How this world counts wealth and all the ways that it counts wealth. We each have our own currency, what we think makes us wealthy. But beloved, nothing can make us wealthy but Christ. Matthew 20 where Jesus is giving a parable and he says the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. You know the rest of the account there, that he found some early in the morning and he said, hey, I'll pay you a denarius if you'll go out into my field. And then he went out a few hours later and found some more and said, hey, I'll pay you a denarius if you go out in my field. And they went out and he did that two more times. And and near the end of the day, when there were only a couple hours left, he said to some, if you go out into the field, I'll give you a denarius. And so they went and at the end of the day, the guys who went out at the first call assumed that they would get more money because they were out there for the whole day. As a matter of fact, they had borne the heat of the day, they complained. And the responder said, well, wait a minute. Why are you faulting me? Didn't we contract for so much? They said, yes. And am I not free to give what I want to give to those who were only there for a short time? Yes. 
Well, then what's your problem? That's, that's us saying, well, I understand how Jesus can forgive me and put me in his kingdom, but I don't understand how he can forgive David Berkowitz, son of Sam. I don't know how he could forgive Hitler if Hitler had repented. I don't know how he could possibly forgive Jeffrey Dahmer if he had repented, put his faith in Christ. I don't know how he could possibly forgive my mother-in-law. Or a Lutheran. Or a Pentecostal, heaven's sakes. How could he do that? You mean maybe there's even salvation for an Arminian? Could be. Could be. Yes. But you see, we, we have our standard, and we think that, that we deserve the bigger part there. Now, it's founded in grace and bestowed by God's own discretion. If you never hear anything about the, the, the gospel of the kingdom, that it is a gospel of grace, he bestows it freely at his discretion. What a good Christ he is. If that weren't true, so many of us would already be in hell. I know I would be. Matthew 20, and he said to this this woman that was the mother of James and John, uh, said to her, what do you want? She came asking a favor. And she said to him, well, say that these two sons of mine, these two disciples of yours, these two apostles of yours, are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your kingdom. I'd love to just go back and unpack that passage in its fullness for you right now because there's some rich things going on there. But they were about to learn a lesson. And the lesson is that position in the kingdom is not the product of effort but bestowal. It's all of grace. Jesus said, I don't even assign that. I submit to the Father and He assigns it. Now, are you willing to drink that cup where you will submit so completely to the Father's will that you won't demand such things? That's the kingdom. Position in it's not the product of effort, but all of grace. This guy likes to tell me this just about every Sunday. She says, you know what? It's those, it's that little old lady that nobody knows by name who's been on her knees crying out for the lost. That's the one who will get the crown. She's right. She's absolutely right. You know, we all look at a Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the prince of the Victorian preachers and 19th century England, and we look at the sustained ministry and the the volumes of blessing that came out of that, the countless thousands who were saved and, and still to this day draw so much from his sermons and all that he's done. But even he couldn't remember the name of that poor, faltering preacher in that little Methodist church in London on that cold, wintry morning who could barely read the Scriptures intelligently, who nevertheless turned to a passage and and read out loud, 
Look unto me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved. And pointed into the balcony at a 16-year-old boy and said, You there, who look so miserable, look unto him, and you'll be saved. That'll be a great reward. Matthew 21 Jesus tells a parable about one brother, father who had two sons, and, and he said to the one son, will you go into my field and do such and such? And the son said, sure, and then, and then went off and played video games. And the other son, he said, will you quit playing video games and go out into the field? And he said, nah, I need to finish this. But, but when his dad left, he, he put the control set down and went out and worked anyway. And Jesus said, which one do you think? Which one really obeyed his father? They said the first, the one who actually, I told it in reverse there, but the one who actually went. And he said, then truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the Protestant, and the prostitutes, and Protestants. <laughs> there's, there's a Freudian slip, huh? <laughs> I love it. <sighs> truly I say to you that the tax collectors and the prostitutes will go into the kingdom of God before you. It belongs only to those who know and own their sin. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you will judge yourself a sinner in need, in absolute need of a Savior. You can't come to Him and just get help. You need transformation, regeneration, a miracle. If we will not own our sin, we cannot be His. Matthew 21, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. He's building off that same thought that he just had. He's speaking to the religionists of his day, to the Pharisees and the scribes. It belongs not to those who claim the kingdom outwardly, who simply make a profession of faith but it belongs to those whom the kingdom already owns inwardly. What a, what a tremendous difference there. And in Matthew 22, again Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And you remember the account. He sent out invitations everywhere and said, Come, I want you to... Come to the wedding feast of my son. And there were three in particular that he mentioned, and they all offered their excuses as to why they didn't value the king enough that they would want to honor his son's wedding. That's what the invitation is to you today if you're a non-believer. The day is coming when the king's son is to be wedded to his bride, the church. And he is giving you an invitation by virtue of the gospel right now to come to that wedding. To be as happy about the manifestation of his mercy and grace of seeing this redeemed bride joined to her husband. He, he's ecstatic about it. And he's calling you to come and to rejoice with him over it. But if you have no concept of it, you won't. And they didn't. And those who refuse its invitation will suffer the eternal wrath of God. what Jesus taught. This gospel of the kingdom is not fluff. This is central to who and what we 
are in Christ. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. This is one of the mysteries of our age. But that mystery is that religious people may well refuse this kingdom and then try to deny it to others, all the time claiming to be religious, claiming to be spiritual. We see it all the time in our day. And it is a a dreadful circumstance. Or in Matthew 24... This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Its consummation is linked to the end of this age. Don't look for the full establishment of the kingdom in your life. Look for it when Christ returns. That's when things will be fulfilled, when they'll be brought to their consummation. And we wait for that day when the kingdom will be completely fulfilled in all of its glory. And then the kingdom of heaven, he's going to tell another parable. It'll be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. You remember the account here where there are some who were waiting for this wedding to take place. And in the eastern custom, uh, often the, the bride would, or the groom would come back to his house and, and get his wedding party, announce that now's the time for the feast. And, and, but some who would be there would not quite be ready and, and they said, hey, to the others, we need oil for our lamps. And they said, no, it's too late. The kingdom must be welcomed when it makes its first appearance, for there is no second chance. There is no second chance. It is embraced in this life before the king comes, or all bets are off. There is no other way. Jesus is playing about these parameters. He's setting them up for us so that we don't, we don't miss them. In Matthew 25, it'll be the kingdom is like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. And you remember what he says, that each one was given a certain amount of responsibility, and then he came back and said, what have you done with what I've given you? This is always a good question for us. What have we done with the spiritual things that Christ has placed in our hands? Because this is it. It's about a sacred trust. The preaching of the gospel is a sacred trust. The gospel is the personal possession of the king, and he has placed it in our hands, and, and we'll come at some point and say, ECF, what have you done with the gospel of my kingdom? Even as he will come to us as individuals and say, what have we done? Here's this treasure, and what have we done with this gospel? Have we just hoarded it up for ourselves? Or have we made sure that it's broadcast to the world so that it's invested and returned to Him? Or in Matthew 25 again, then the king will say to those who are on his right, come, this is about the at the end of the age, the separation of the sheep and the goats, those who believe and those who don't. And the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Beloved, its consummation awaits Christ coming in his glory. That's when we get to enter the kingdom in its fullness. Matthew 26, at the Last Supper, Jesus tells the disciples there, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day 
when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. You know one of the things that I really love about this verse? This is a complete sideline. This is absolutely free. It's not in my notes. You don't have to remember it. There won't be a test. Um, this is just a fun one. For people who get into all sorts of arguments, they get their panties in a wad about whether or not we should have real wine or whether or not we should have grape juice at communion. Jesus said, a pox on both your houses. It's the fruit of the vine. I'm not going to tell you the form. I'm just going to tell you the substance. But you know what? We'll, we'll, de- we'll make denominations over that kind of a separation. How ridiculous. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The kingdom's consummation is to be found in perfect communion with the resurrected Christ. What is the picture of the communion table? It is his people dining at the king's table with him. Extraordinary. What a time. And he restricts his own joy until that time is had. What a, what a redeemer who says, I refuse to allow myself the enjoyment of that until I finally have all of you gathered with me. What a Christ. What a Christ. Do you realize that he will not Enjoy this until he gets to drink it again with you, believer. He will deny himself that. And then in Mark 9, if your eye causes you to sin, now notice we've only dealt with kingdom in Matthew so far. (laughs) We've only looked at the mentions in Matthew so far. We're going to run through some of the rest of these pretty quickly. Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with with two eyes and to be thrown into hell. It is impossible to make oneself pure enough to attain the kingdom. He shows it with the most extreme demonstration there. That's also a, a call to the violence we ought to do to our own sinfulness. But the reality is, and you all know this, he knows this too. Uh, Origen found this now. I found this out. The early church father. Origen struggled with sexual lust. It was a problem. So Origen, in a fit of super spirituality, castrated himself. Bad move. Not the right approach. Which he wrote about later. And said, you know what? It doesn't change the lust. It just changes the ability to act on it. Bad move. Now, it's impossible to make yourself pure enough to attain it. We need the righteousness of Christ. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Second point, it is worth suffering any earthly loss to obtain it. No thing should be so dear to us that we would cling to it and and lose the kingdom of heaven at the same time. Mark 12, this is when a a man came to him and questioned him. And as they talked about the great commandment of the Scripture, the dialogue, the man said, 
the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. He affirmed Jesus' answer and said, yes, I, I believe that. And Jesus answered him and said, you, you've answered wisely. You're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Those who recognize that the kingdom is rooted in right relationship to God and man are on the right track. Those who ignore those things are off into some sign of a false religion. Kingdom is rooted in a right relationship to God and man. That's, you're on the right track. Maybe that's where you are today. You're not a Christian yet, but you recognize this truth. You're not far from the kingdom. Come to Christ. Luke 1, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. This is the prophecy regarding Jesus before he was born by John the Baptist's father. This Jesus, this one to be born, will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will rule Israel and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The kingdom of Christ, when it comes, will have no successor. It is God's final kingdom. We are moving toward that, that consummation of all things, and it will be summed up in him. No, no successive kingdom after that. We've, we've seen successive ages in our life, but we won't in the same way afterward. Luke 4 This is when Jesus had been healing a bunch of people. The the night before, he had healed Peter's mother-in-law, who had been sick with a fever. And when that happened, they started bringing to him all sorts of other people to be healed and to have the demons cast out. But in the morning, they went looking for him, and he couldn't be found. The disciples found him out in the wilderness. He was praying by himself. And they said to him, hey, everybody's looking for you. No fool. And they wanted to drag him back to do more of these healings. And and if you had an, a sick child or a sick spouse and, and you wanted that done, you'd want him to come back too. But he said to them, no, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus considered the preaching of the kingdom more important than healing people. Because you can get healed and still go to hell. It's that simple. And he knew how that priority needed to to line up. In Luke 8, soon afterward, Jesus went on through the cities and the villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God as the twelve were with him. This is what Jesus preached about most often. This was the subject matter of his own preaching, the, 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 the central theme of his own preaching. The apostles heard this and saw this and witnessed this and participated in it as he, as he went about. In Luke 8.10, he said, and this is, this is Jesus talking to his disciples when, when they wondered why he talked in parables at times. And he said, to you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. This belongs to the family of God, to those who are in the kingdom. But for others, they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. This was a, a judgment on unbelieving Jews. Anyone who came to him and said, please explain the parables, he always unfolded them. But this is how he weeded out the genuine from the false. If you only wanted to listen on the surface and departed, then you didn't get to know the mysteries of the kingdom. If you came to him and asked for an explanation, he would unfold the mysteries of the kingdom. 
Those who have no inquiry after the things of God, have no desire to read the Bible to understand the mysteries of the kingdom, will not know the mysteries of the kingdom, and probably they're not yours to have. It's a mystery revealed to some and withheld from others. This kingdom is astounding stuff. Amazing. Can I get through 22 more of these in the last 12 minutes? All right. I may make you all just stand up and get ready. No, I won't. Luke 9. He called the 12 together. And he gave them power and authority over, over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to what? To proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. The message. No one was ever saved just by being healed. Saved by hearing and responding to the message. And its message is what he gave the twelve to take to the house of Israel, to the Jews. This is what he sent them out with. This is what he sends us out with. The gospel of the kingdom. In Luke 9, Jesus said to him, this man who had uh, said to Jesus, look, I'll follow you, but first I need to go back and bury my father. I don't know if he was, you know, his dad might have only been 65, and he might have been saying, you know, well, 30 years down the line, I'll come back and follow you. Or his dad might have been at that store. I don't know what the situation was. But, but he said, well, let me go back and do that first, and then I'll follow you. And Jesus said to him, you leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. This is imperative, and its eternal nature is contrasted to this temporal one, this present age. He was, this guy was all caught up in the immediacy of his situation, but Jesus said, no, the, the eternal nature of the kingdom rises above that. It's far more important, and, and you don't want to lose sight of that. In Luke 9, Jesus told another person, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And and if you're not a Christian here today, I want you to hear this very clearly. And if you are a Christian here today, maybe this is a good refresher for you. Don't miss the reality of this point. The kingdom requires an irrevocable commitment. You don't try Jesus. That's, That's a fallacy. It requires an irrevocable commitment. You can't say, oh, well, I'll I'll try this out for a couple years, and if it doesn't work, then I'll try something else. It's not the way coming to Christ functions. You're going to put all of it on the line. He's going to require all of you, spirit, soul, and body, not just now, but for eternity. I want you to know that. And not come under false pretenses. Christ is really going to demand something of you. Everything. Everything. Forever. Luke 10. Jesus saying that for those who, when they go into, told the apostles, when you go into towns and they don't receive your message, then I want you to say something to them as you leave. You tell them that even the dust of your town that clings to your feet we wipe off against you. And nevertheless know this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. It is said, the kingdom is said to be near us when the gospel is preached. This is the only conduit into the kingdom. It's hearing and believing, obeying the gospel. 
And when we say obeying the gospel, we touched that again last week. You can't simply understand the truths of the gospel. One must actually trust Christ. Luke eleven seventeen. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, when they accused him of casting out demons by the finger of the devil, he said... Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. This will be seen to be true, especially in the end. But, beloved, know this. There is no discord in the kingdom. No division. It does not fight against itself. And when we are found as Christians, fighting against Christians, we are found acting in a way that is completely contrary to the kingdom of Christ. And it should give us pause. It should give us pause. Yesterday, I, uh, I hugged a, a Dallas Seminary grad. It was difficult. We talked about it together. Um, and we talked about the unity that we need In Christ. In Christ. And he said, I don't want to fight Christians anymore. And I said, neither do I. I've got enough with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Why would I want to fight another Christian? It's the luxury of our prosperity. There's no discord in the kingdom. No division. Luke 11.20, If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's reality. The kingdom's reality in, in opposition to the devil was demonstrated in the casting out of demons, of, of spirits that, that promote the pursuit of evil in people and in some cases actually possess them. Or in Luke 12, I just love this. Matter of fact, for us as believers, you need to grasp this. Christian, please hear this and put the right value on it, will you? Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is the Father's delight to bestow it on His chosen one. Have you ever been given something and you just didn't know the value of it till later? I was watching Antiques Roadshow the other night. And this guy had bought something at a flea market for 50 bucks. It was a painting. And he brought it in to have them assess it. And after the, the assessor talked about it for a few minutes, he said, do you have a any sense of its value or its worth? And he goes, yeah. He says, I was, somebody told me once it was probably worth $500 or so. And he said, I was, I was hoping because that would be a pretty decent you know, return on my 50 bucks. My grandfather's 50 bucks. He said, no, you need to insure this for about 300000 I fear that we as Christians have no concept of how precious, precious the kingdom is. But we get a hint here. It is the Father's good pleasure to give it to us. This is what he delights to give us. And says, if, and if it tickles him pink, shouldn't it tickle us pink? 
how we undervalue it. But it's his delight to give it to us. It's it's a glorious gift that he deems supremely wonderful that we might enter into the kingdom of Christ. What a treasure. And yet how little we've dug into that to get a sense of it and and how wonderful and how all-consuming that ought to be. Talking about those who will not enter in. He says, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out, we find out that those outside of it will suffer greatly. This is not a neutral thing. Oh, I want to pursue some other thing. God says it doesn't work that way. You're either in the kingdom or out of the kingdom. And in the kingdom, you get the, the, very, the thing that God delights in most to give to us. And outside of it, there will be terrible, eternal tragedy and suffering. People will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. The kingdom defies ethnic, national, and cultural boundaries. No such thing as the kingdom being preached under those pretenses. One of the great travesties that goes on in America today is that there is still a fostering of such wickedness like white supremacy and and then trying to connect that in some really perverted way to Christianity. It's insane. The kingdom defies ethnic and national and cultural boundaries. Luke 16, the law and the prophets were until John And since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached everywhere, and everyone forces his way into it. The truth is, it has not yet been fully realized. People are still pressing in. Now, we're at 61. I've got got 12 more, and our time is gone. So we're going to have to pick this up next week. All I hope is happening is that I'm developing in you as believers some sense of the wonder of what this kingdom is and how important it is and how we need to think in kingdom terms rather than merely personal terms. Yes, I have to recognize personal things, but I've got to see that in relationship to the kingdom. How do I fit into God's eternal plan and purpose, to the scope of what he's doing? You are called to something magnificent and high and eternal. And, and with all of those who are in Christ together, it's extraordinary. And don't just, don't just think you belong to some little Christian sect in, in the, the eastern corner of Monroe County in, in the 21st century. If you're born again today, you're part of this kingdom. And let that begin to breathe that in and the wonder of it and the extraordinariness of it, the power of it, the glory of it, the grandeur of it, and all the implications that that come along with that. Stand with me, please. Father God, I do pray for each one that we would begin to grasp this and lay hold upon it. There's so much here, and I know we've covered an enormous amount of detail running in this particular way. This is not an expositional sermon per se, and yet... At times we need to step back and thread through these things. And, and I thank you for the opportunity to do that. 
Help us not get lost in the details, but help us begin to comprehend the breadth of this and the power of it and the magnificence of it and the mind-boggling glory of it all. And realize what you've brought us into. Part of the royal family in the eternal kingdom of the living God and His Christ. How petty and small and insignificant are the things that we put up against that. And do it carelessly. Forgive us. Oh, cause your people to catch a fresh vision of this, I pray. And for any among us who are not believers here, that they will begin to, to catch a glimpse of it too and say, I want that. I want, to, I want this kingdom. I, I want what is being portrayed here. Like Paul preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, hoping the Jews would get jealous. I want every unbeliever to be jealous of this kingdom that we are a part of. May it be their, their salvation. Seal these words to our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You're dismissed.